0: Now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers. Airport, please stay on board. Next stop,
1: road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question,
0: the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
2: Hello and welcome to The Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. Now with me in the studio today, I am delighted to welcome back Stuart Robson. And with him also is the one and only living gear brand in captivity, it's Mr. James. Later on, we're going to be joined by a former regular on this podcast, Paddy Barkley. We'll be talking to him about his new book on the legendary Sir Matt Busby and perhaps... Also talking a little bit of David Moyes with him. I'm just going on the fact that they're both Scots, right? So they all know each other, right? (laughs) They've all shared intimate moments, probably on the golf course, in fact. But first, we need to start with the three lions. Stewart, international friendly, prestige friendly, prestige opponent. Southgate calls up a bunch of kids, and then he called up more kids for the uh, Brazil friendly on Tuesday. Makes sense, right?
0: Yes, it makes sense uh, because a lot of the senior players dropped out, of course. Uh, it makes sense because he's been promoting a lot of these young players when he was the under-21 manager. He said how, what great players they were. They won the Toulon tournament last year with him in charge. Uh, there's lots of... there's lots of
2: the, 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 the Toulon tournament is not a real thing, OK? But mm-hmm. England have won the, the under-20. They've won okay, the yeah, under-17. Talk about, they've, they've, talk they've about done, those they've done, things. They've yeah. done
0: very well over the last couple of years. Uh And I think he's trying to say something to the Premier League managers that if you give some of these players a chance, they're good enough. You know, and and you won't know whether they're good enough until you do give them a chance and the likes of Loftus-Cheek who uh, when I saw him at Chelsea never got that many opportunities but I'm not sure he did himself that many favours when he did play uh, he's gone to Crystal Palace but he's been along the, the, the England route at under 17, under 19, under 21 level uh, Gareth Southgate knows him well and he thinks he's good enough to come in and play and he had a good game against Germany
2: when People talk about well you know no, Chelsea are bad when they send people on loan but then they're also bad guys when they keep people there because, you know, he did spend three years at the club and, right, Mourinho's second season, they were terrible, but, you know, he won two Premier League titles in those three years and he didn't get many games, but a lot of it is because he was, what, 18, 19, and 20 in those years. What's been put to me by people at Chelsea when they saw him coming through is a, a lot of guys actually compared him to. They can bring to Michael Ballack in, in some ways because he isn't an attacking midfielder, but he's got a, a certain skill set. Uh, because of his size, people played him deeper. I know Southgate played him deeper with the under-21s occasionally. And the fact is on those teams, with, with the way Chelsea were set up, he wasn't going to break in ahead of Hazard and, and Willian and, 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 and people like that.
0: If you're a young player coming into a team like Manchester City, Chelsea, you can't just have a good game because there's already really top-class players there. So when you come in, you get one chance, maybe two chances. You've got to be the best player on the field. Otherwise, you go back down and they say, well, you know, he's not going to affect the game as much as Hazard is. He's not going to affect the game as much as Willian is. He's not going to affect the game as much as Pedro is. So it's very difficult for him to actually make a, a, a real case for getting into the side on a regular basis. So he's probably at the right place at the moment, playing for Crystal Palace. And if he has a great season for Crystal Palace, then he becomes a player that people want to buy you know, off Chelsea for for and playing in a top side, but I think he has to prove himself playing at a slightly lower level side, like Crystal Palace, like a West Ham or or, or Southampton, and that's when you get your reputation. That's when people will come and come. Out. It's happened to the likes of Matic that you couldn't get in at Chelsea, goes somewhere else, then plays brilliantly, and they go and buy him back.
2: Gearbrand, yeah, would, would you would you see him in starting for any top six team?
1: Well, I think that there are kind of there are ways of doing it, aren't there? I mean, I think. We might have said the same about Harry Winks last season. We might have said, "Okay, well, he's had one or two decent performances, but could you really see him starting?" And actually, this season, he is starting for Tottenham. The, the problem at Chelsea, obviously, is that well, he's starting now that
2: certain players are injured. I mean, it took that for him to get yeah. The
1: okay, start line. okay. So yeah, he's maybe not. You know, you're in your absolute Tottenham. We'll see what world.
2: happens if Dembele's ever fully fit and when Wanyama comes back?
1: But the point is that. Mauricio Pochettino has had him in his plans Mm. and he's given him the opportunity. Whereas at at Chelsea, Loftus-Cheek has been sent on loan and they signed Timuray Bakayoko, who plays sort of, could argue because of Loftus-Cheek, is quite a versatile player, but he plays sort of more or less in the same position as Loftus-Cheek. If you send a young player out on loan, if he's not quite ready for the first team, like a Loftus-Cheek, if you send him out on loan to a sort of a slightly inferior club, a lower table club, In theory, you know, he should shine there. I actually think Loftus-Cheek has played pretty well at Crystal Palace so far because, you know, it's a a slightly kind of lesser club and in theory his quality should stand out. But actually, I think the example of Harry Wink shows, and also you could argue Loftus-Cheek against Germany, is that some players, given a bit of responsibility, and the occasion will rise to the occasion, whereas you might be sent on loan to a struggling team and you can sort of be dragged down by the dysfunction there. Well,
0: I mean, uh, there's, there's a lot of, most of the young players that get into sides in the top six get there with that little bit of luck. They're good players, but somebody gets injured, somebody gets suspended they for quite a while. And I, I'll use Kieran Gibbs as an example, who played for England, who nobody thought was ever going to get into Arsenal's team. There was no thought about him getting into the Arsenal team. Then they had a problem at left-back, goal cliche. Uh, gets transferred they didn't have anybody else to put in there the player that they put in there they bought from Brazil had, a, had an absolute shocker Andre Santos Andre Santos And Kieran Gibbs gets an opportunity because there's two or three injuries. And he plays well for three or four weeks. They keep him in the side. And he plays well for maybe a year. And he gets an England call-up. And suddenly, he's he's considered a Premier League player. So you need that little bit of luck to get your chance. And then you've got to take your chance.
2: Although then, you could also argue, then he spends another, what, six years at the club and contributes absolutely nothing because he's not an Arsenal-caliber player. I don't know what Loftus-Cheek's future is going to be. But he's playing on a team with, with Conte, who... I presume is much as a much greater player and than Loftus Cheek might ever become. Eden Hazard as well. You can debate Willian and what uh, do you know what I mean? Like, it, but, but you said sometimes it, your, body, your happens, body language,
0: you know, if he, uh, even so, even you, so, we're talking about on the ball, he's technically very good. I want to see a bit more dynamism from him, and I he has got that because everybody tells me he's he's, he's very quick, he's very powerful. Uh, He's very good technically, but I think he wants to play at his own pace uh, slightly. You know, all the great players, if we're talking about going on to be great players, they could play slowly and then they could. At the at the uh, switch of a, a button they could flick it on and be super fast you know and I'm talking about the, the best the Cruyffs the, the George Bests, all these sort of players they had the technical ability to do things slowly and be controlled on the ball but when they needed to burst away from people they burst away from and I'm not sure I see that with Loftus-Cheek whether and I don't think it's because he can't do it I think he wants to play a
1: little bit at his own pace
2: Are you going to stick up for Loftus-Cheek since I'd... you're closer to his, him in age than uh, Stewart, <laughs> I mean it's I modular. just
1: I just wonder if players sometimes get damned on a sort of Character basis, because of the type of player that mm. they are. I mean, you kind oh, of agree. you very rarely sort of hear defensive midfielders being criticised for a lack of hunger. Yeah. Whereas Loftus Cheek, he's he's whatever he's he's not an outright defensive midfielder. He's sort of a kind of rangy, skillful. He's he, Michael Ballack. He's mm. yeah, He's he's more that type Late of player, Michael Ballack. and he's you know he's he's a very skillful player. And I just I wonder if that sometimes comes across. I don't know, maybe to
0: but. To, to be Michael Ballack, he's got to go and score more goals. He's got to be driving into the box to win headers. He's got to make sure that he's he's running games. Mm. That's what Michael Ballack did when he, he can did be his bad, best. Michael Ballack.
2: He can be Kevin Nolan.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true.
2: I think of Tammy Abraham. The point was made to be by people at Chelsea actually that you know he had this tremendous year at Bristol City where he scored a lot of goals on on a fairly I don't follow the championship, but I can read the table on a fairly mediocre championship side. Where, you know, they didn't necessarily have a lot of the ball and he had a lot of space and he was the main attacking terminus and so on. And the point was made that, you know, at Chelsea it would be different because Chelsea would have most of the ball against, you know, you go and you play Burnley and they have eight people back and, and there's a different skill set involved in that. And so maybe a year at Swansea where again, this would be a side where it, you know wouldn't be very good and he would be, he would be the main threat might be better to him for him mm-hmm. than having him come off the bench the way Michi Bachwai does when usually when when Chelsea need desperately need a goal and there's a million players around him. I was just thinking about that. And then Tammy Abraham plays for England and England are a team who like to keep the ball and like to try to we can debate whether it's the right thing to do or not. But it is a different experience. I mean you've been there as a player and you've coached these guys. How much does the way a team actually plays impact impact the situation, especially for for a young player?
0: Uh, yeah, of course it does. You know, when you're uh, Antonio Conte, when he's managing a team, I think the the, the major strength of the centre forward has to be that he can play with his back to goal to link up the play and then break forward. You couldn't play Tammy Abraham in that position because he not w- yet he hasn't not yet because he, he wouldn't develop. He, he's not so good with his back to goal. He's just somebody that wants to run forward. If you're playing counter-attacking football, but we, he
2: certainly has the body to for it, right? Yeah, because he's a big guy. But and there, He's but, aggressive
0: but, and yeah, but there's there's having the body and there's also having the technical ability to to play well, with your back to goal.
2: I want to talk a little bit about Brazil because um, just to plug something else that's in the game, uh, James, you wrote a very long piece, um, I thought, well, research piece uh, about Brazil's revival. For me, right now, under, under under Chiche, they probably are the best team in the world. Uh, they have a bit of a complex because they haven't played any Western European sides in the in the time frame. I think it's entirely irrelevant. You just just take me through how they managed to sort of break the whole sort of dunga Scolari, Stasis, 7-1 hangover to put together what they have today.
1: So after the 7-1 defeat in semi-finals of the 2014 World Cup, I think a, a lot of Brazilians, from what I understand, assumed that Tite would be the next manager. He was sort of seen as the obvious appointment because he'd had a lot of success with Corinthians. Sorry, you have
2: to pronounce it the way Brazilians Chiche. pronounce it. <laughs> Tite. <something like> <laughs> Apologies to all my Brazilian <laughs> friends.
1: Yeah. Um, But instead, the Brazilian Football Confederation went back to Dunga, who obviously had already had an unsuccessful stint in charge of the national team. Dunga then oversaw two poor Copper America campaigns, one where they lost in the quarterfinal and one where they didn't even make out of the group. They then began South American qualifying for the 2018 World Cup. They had, I think, nine points from six games, so they were sixth after six games. Dunga was then fired Tite was then appointed by the Brazilian Football Confederation and he clearly has completely turned things around to the extent that in the remaining 12 games under Tite, I think they took 32 points, which on their own would have been enough to top South American qualifying compared yeah. to the 18 games that everyone else had played. So
0: how did he change it?
2: He went to look into to China, which, you know, it's I funny because well, what we in Europe are like, oh, through China, uh, they've all packed it in, right? But he goes to China and he gets Paulinho and Renato Augusto, who you know <laughs> really have been stellar, I think. Um, but really, the only other newcomer is Gabriel Jesus, right? Who, mm-hmm. who perhaps Dungan and Scolari did not have. So it's the same cast of characters, and maybe the goalkeeper with with, with Allison. That's pretty remarkable.
1: Yeah, I mean, so. In terms of the the actual team that played the seven one, it is quite different, or at least it appears quite different, because of those players. I think it's only really Marcelo and Fernandinho that are still involved. So the likes of David Luiz, for example, has still has still not made his way back into the squad. But if you look at the wider twenty fourteen World Cup squad, well, he didn't he didn't play in that game. Yeah, he right. certainly didn't start it. I mean, but they were him. on the squad. Tragil, Silver, exactly, that's what I was going to say. Neymar, yeah, Neymar, Thiago Silva, Paulinho is in the yeah. squad as well. Uh, William, I think, was in the squad. One thing that has, has helped Neymar, as I understand it, is that Coutinho is now, he's, he's very much in the first choice starting 11. And Neymar and Coutinho played together in uh, the Brazil under 17, and under 20 teams. And I think that, that helps Neymar to have Coutinho, who he knows very well, to link up with.
2: I was watching uh, Sunday supplement, it hadn't occurred to me. But they made the point that, like, every single, like, there, there's been no pullouts from the Brazil squad why you compare that to England, and it's like, oh, a groan, and you know, you've got like 12 people pull, pulling out. Now, I know there's different reasons and different contexts, but I think it's remarkable that everybody wants to be a part of this excitement that, that GJ's, uh generated. West Ham, who of course won the World Cup in 1966, and were once uh, captained, I believe, by a... Uh, by uh, Stuart Robson with hair, is that right? Uh, with hair, yeah. Yes. Uh, they have a new manager, it's David Moyes, and joining us is Paddy Barkley, welcome back. Thank you very uh, much, it's been a while, I while. <laughs> I was wondering where you've not been long, hiding. Not, not, not long enough. <laughs> but uh, I want to discuss this because David Moyes is one of those people who I like as a person yes. as well as, as admiring someone's work as a manager, some of it's been mm. good, some of it. Less good. What I struggle with, and what mm. I think a lot of people struggle with, including our colleague Matt Dickinson, who mm. wrote a whole column mm. about this, is why he's taking a job at West Ham and Dicko has serious concerns about a genuinely good person yeah. um, like David Moyes getting involved with the Unholy Trinity. Is that unfair? Uh, no, it's reasonable. Um, I, I, I personally. I, I would
3: disagree in the sense that David Moyes has to... What if he'd said no? Every every other employer would say, yeah, uh, hmm, he doesn't fancy it. What does he think? What Does he want a top four club again? I think he had to, to have a go at it. He's probably also looked at the squad and thought, I can get to fourth bottom with this lot, in which case I'm a hero. Like, you know... Various, uh, you know, managers of Sunderland became, became heroes because of saving Sunderland and he's obviously reckons the chances are 60-40 on and, and therefore he's taken it. I, I, I feel that he is, a, he is a good manager. I mean, there's no, no, It's not a question.
0: Do you think he still believes? He's a good manager because the last couple of jobs he's had, when I've seen him interviewed, he doesn't look the same person that I knew when he was at Preston yeah, and the same person that I knew when he was at Everton.
3: Look, he wouldn't be human if he if he wasn't shaken by uh, his experiences at, at Manchester United, Sunderland and uh, and in Spain as well. But uh, at the same time, he, he either gives up and goes and lives on a country estate in, you know, Lancashire or somewhere or... He reproves himself. He has to do it. I'm absolutely certain those will have been his his thought process. Of course he's not stupid. Sir Alex Ferguson doubted himself during the first five years at Manchester United. And David will have doubted himself, even though there are excuses in each case. I mean, Sunderland, for heaven's sake, who's going to be a successful manager there? Manchester United immediately after Ferguson, with all the problems you get from the players, and he got more than he should have done from the players Real Sociedad wasn't it uh, uh, one of the one of the clubs you know seem perpetually now in Spain uh, you know to be unable to compete at even the second level let alone the first so I think uh, you know there are excuses he knows the truth that he didn't really uh, fail with potential but at, at West Ham he does have a job He's, with some he's potential, gonna ha, he's going to have to change the philosophy going West Ham. Have the off-field philosophy, he's yeah. going to have to. Ch- he's going to have to change the dressing room for a start, which is a disgrace, quite frankly. And the off-the-field, I think, will be easier because although the three musketeers, or whatever you would call Brady the Sullivan,
2: unholy trinity,
3: unholy trinity, trinity. thank you, um, uh, whatever you would call them, they haven't distinguished themselves over over a village, mm-hmm. or, or indeed since moving to the Olympic Stadium. But by and large, during their careers in football, they have not been notorious sackers uh, in the sense that other people weren't. So they just have to revert to type. And oddly enough, I feel that David Moyes is an ideal, uh, and again, you know, it's not a question of me saying it, it's a question of his record. He's a, he's a very good long-term manager. Um, and uh, he's someone that I feel that uh, Sunderland should have certainly should have uh, tried to... They weren't good enough for him, frankly, Sunderland as a club. As, as a, you know, you, you, can, you can always... You, you might say, yeah, West Ham, not great off the field, but my word, it's like a proper football club compared with Sunderland.
0: But they they say that what's been going on under Bilic in recent times mm. it has it's been almost like a holiday camp. The the, the t- yeah. players well, turning up when they want. With that in to. mind,
2: though, I'm wondering. Maybe this is too too yeah. easy a reading. Um, it was confirmed last night that what well, a lot of people reported that Stuart Pierce is mm. coming in as uh, as his as assistant. Yeah. Now,
0: along with Alan Irvine as well.
2: Okay, yeah. is, nobody, In knows, nobody words, knows who Alan Irvin is, whereas everybody knows out. who Psycho is and Stuart Pierce is a... You know, that's you know, his, know, te, but, his technique. You know, one he knows well and one the club knows Okay, well. but here's my thing, right? Mm. So, I don't see any real commonality between Stuart Pierce no. and David Moyes. And, and I'm guessing, you, know, you, you mentioned the word holiday camp. Mm. Is it something as simple as... You know he's going to play. Stuart Pierce is there to play bad cop, and Moisey's good cop. A little bit like uh, your pal Walter Smith and Archie Knox, who just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. come in to shout at people. Yeah, no, I think uh, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I mean,
3: Stuart will correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think you can have uh, a really bad cop these days. Uh, I think that the power of of the player is so great, his economic independence makes it very difficult for anybody to be a really bad cop.
2: Antonio Conte can be a really, really bad cop.
3: Yeah, and and, and you know, probably last week or next week, you'll be discussing the crisis at Chelsea. So, it's, it's very difficult to manage footballers these days. More difficult than it's ever been. Okay, so that, and it's going to get worse. Why appoint Stuart Pearce?
0: I'd imagine he thinks that Stuart Pearce will be a good motivator of the players and uh, a good uh, and I'd maybe been a bit a bit of a jolly up man with yeah. the players. Uh, he'll be doing, taking all the warm ups, he'll be doing the little side drills, while David Moyes and, and Alan Irvin who he's his other coach, who's a, probably yeah. a better coach than Stuart Pearce, will come out and take most of the technical work and the tactical work, and Stuart Pearce will be somebody that will will, will try and g the players up, and he'll be on their side because he's a good character. Yeah. So everybody tells me. Yeah, yeah. And I, 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 he's a nice, is, he's is a, a straight, nice straight. straight, straight, straight guy, yeah. he's a straight, talking, and he's a nice, honest, honest chap. Yeah. That now managers have to surround themselves with a coaching team of four or five. Yes, yes. Because exactly. they, they, they feel too lonely when they're by themselves, and there's too many players that can go against yeah, them, and they've got enough support. Yeah,
2: James. Oh, you're talking about all these old people, right? Yeah, you, 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 they're crowding you, you out. <laughs> you've probably never seen Stuart Pearce play. Um, well, I, 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 You
1: couple, haven't, have you? No. Not in the flesh, no. no. Oh. Um, a couple of things that yeah. occurred to me from what you were saying, Paddy. Yeah, right. One, do you think that the West Ham dressing room he's walking into is actually that different from the Sunderland dressing room? Because it, it strikes me that actually, in no. terms of the squad profile, it's quite similar in that you've got, you've got a quite sort of old... Core of mostly British. Well, not mostly British. You've got yeah. an old core of British players, mm-hmm. a lot let's, with let's, a lot let's, of.
2: Let's name names here to help people well, along. the part
1: of Lee
3: Catamore will be played by Mark Noble. Yeah.
1: Okay. Premier League experience up front. You've got you know you're quite reliant on a sort of quite mm. aging yeah. poacher type striker. Yes. I mean, I didn't look at the Sunderland squad last year and think it was terrible. Mm. It just sort of didn't. It didn't work. It would sort of wasn't quite. Well, just in his
2: defense, he was named Sunderland manager way late. Mm. Um, I think it was late July, wasn't it? Yeah. And on top of that, I think there were certain restrictions to what he could do with the squad because Mm. of, uh, of the financial situation. And that's why he ended up taking all those rubbish United players on loan. He couldn't, get, he could, yeah, he couldn't loan. get
0: rid of some of the bad players because they were on too much money. Nobody yes. else would take them on right. on contract yeah. and he couldn't get new players exactly. in because he didn't have enough money. He could also that, have
2: avoided taking people like Donald Love in, but, you know, <laughs> <in> his <laughs> cool name, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but here, this is, no, I, a I very mean, the thing point. about it because it's become fashionable to go and blame, you know, Noble, he doesn't have the legs anymore and, and Arnautovic, he's lazy, he's lazy. Fine. Mm. Take Noble and Arnautovic out of the mix. Mm. If the other people are fit, This squad is still a mid-table squad. West Ham is really, really,
0: really good players. But the hardest thing to do, from what what I've heard about West Ham, they're unfit because the training hasn't been disciplined enough. The players have... uh, It's been like a holiday camp there. And it's very difficult mid-season for David Moyes to come in and get the players fit up and running at the pace he wants them. Because he's going to play, I'd imagine, uh, uh, quite a high-pressing game. He wants his players to, to be athletic. And I'm not sure the players are athletic at the moment. When I've so seen they them, play.
2: Have international football, uh, there, there, there's, I don't know. I, I just think if you have a good manager, quality makes a difference. Mm. And yeah, and these are really good players that he has. I
1: mean, the other thing that I was going to say is mm-hmm. that, as you pointed out, Paddy, mm-hmm. David Moyes is a very good long-term manager. Yeah. I mean, the key success on his record was that and kind Everton, of, you know, man. Everton, that big sort of almost dynastic yeah. success that he had yeah. there. And what he's ostensibly been asked to come in and do here is a sort of you know, he's only on a contract at the end of the season, is a sort of short-term firefighting job, which I don't, does that necessarily play to his strengths?
3: Well, uh, I I, I do agree with you there. Um, I think your analysis is absolutely spot on. The only thing I would say was that when he did, when he first went to Everton from Preston, Mm. it was a relegation fight, it really was. David Unsworth, who was was there, I remember him being in the team. At Unzi, and uh, was was it was in the team, and and it's, it was a relegation fight, and he got he got them out of that, and he turned the team around. Now, if he believes, and and you, you and, and Robbo believe, and I'm pretty sure, and Gab probably is, that there is enough at West Ham to finish fourth bottom, and I would put it no higher than that. Really? Yes, because. The, basically, you don't win matches without character, and this is a squad without. This is it's got no communal character. But that's why. That's why. That's why they play the there. way they do. I.
2: I don't know. I, I. I. still think it's down to the, down to the players, and I think. Yes, they do. These are really good players, um, relative to the teams that are around them in the table, and. I mean, I'll give you a better scenario. Mm. How about West Ham to finish mid-table, Unzi to get the job through the end of the season at Everton, mm-hmm. uh, Everton. Avoid relegation,
1: yeah.
2: and Moisey returns home in the summer, so he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to, to soil himself with the unholy trinity anymore.
3: Oh, I think. I think uh, this is w- w- the next. What Would you go for that?
2: The next thing that would happen would be Moisey would wake up and go, oh, it was only a dream. <laughs> <laughs> now, Patty, the reason we have you here um, is also to to discuss discuss your book um, okay. because you wrote about a guy who is, is revered. He has a street named after him. Yeah. But let's face it, I think he did a lot of his best work many years ago. Yes. Um, I believe before, when you were a child even, that's how long it was. Even before, he did some of his best,
3: yes, when I was a child, he did some of his best work while I was still a gleam in my daddy's eye.
2: There you go. Mm. So we are delving back into we history. We are going
3: back a long time.
2: But we are talking about um, one one of the real icons yeah. of, of football in this in the Scepter yeah. dial, uh, and that's and that's Matt Busby. I, I, yeah. And I'm curious because obviously this has been covered. Matt Busby actually wrote an autobiography, and it's funny because mm. there's um there, 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 I tweeted this out the other day. Mm. Uh, there's a there's a wonderful interview with uh, Busby mm. on, uh, on on Parkinson who. For yes. those who, who don't yes. know, yeah. is, um, is is a former uh, presenter in this in this country, yeah. where among other things he has a he has a go at uh, at Clough, um, yes. and he refers to the sport as a soccer, yes. and he actually yes. his autobiography is actually called. It was actually called soccer,
3: soccer, something or other. Yeah,
2: yep, yep. So, so much for those like oh, it's football, not soccer. I mean, oh, back yeah. then, in the old was, days, nobody know. worried no. about that. Possibly was okay calling it soccer, but football anyway. incorrectness hadn't been invented then. I was struck, and, and and the reason I and I recommend people take a look at this interview. As they read the book, because yeah. it's also different when you see somebody sort of coming to life, yes, not just yes. as a screaming picture, but yes. just... But, but what prompted you? Because a lot's been written about him, a lot's yes. been said about him. Mm-hmm. What prompted you? Well, you talking said, about the, the he, process. He, he,
3: he, he himself wrote two books, but I mean, we are talking half a century ago, um, and they were thin and not very definitive books, and they weren't, in fact, very good. Um, a lot of the other stuff that's been written about Manchester United and therefore Matt Busby, because... Uh, I mean, a lot of us grew up thinking of... You think of Manchester United and Matt Busby's face came up in front of your eyes. Um, I mean, he was Manchester United... To a lot of us, and he's, his name is still sung by the fans. But the trouble is, a lot of the fans who now sing his name, they're not really very sure why they're singing it. They know that he was a former manager and he was a great, great manager, but I don't think they realize how great, how significant he was. How did
0: he get the Manchester United job the first place? Well, race? he
3: was a player for Manchester before the Second World War. He was a player for Manchester. It, it may seem ironic now, but his two clubs were Manchester in England were Manchester City and Liverpool, and he because you know two Manchester United's two greatest, and he was with Manchester City for a few years. He came south from Scotland to play for them, and became made up. Oh, so there
2: is hope for Gary Neville to become Liverpool manager one day. <laughs>
3: I think so. I, was, I certainly there is. If if the power of prayer works, I pray for it daily. But um, he then left Manchester City because they signed a. Uh, a really sexy player called Peter Doherty, and he went to Liverpool where he
2: became captain. The, not, not not, the baby shambles. No. Pete Doherty. No, 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 no,
3: exactly. No, very different. No, no, I know. I know who that is.
2: <laughs> Dearbird has no idea about baby shambles. A, a very.
3: No. Di- yeah, exactly. They were probably finished before he was <laughs> born, unless they're still going on. But uh, as the Second World War broke out he was captain of Liverpool and a very such a respected captain of Liverpool in fact he just welcomed a, a young player from the northeast called Bob Paisley wonder what happened to him <laughs> and uh, and so he was so respected by Liverpool that he was quietly offered the job of assistant manager and he said well I want to be a manager in my own right uh, eventually and they said well I'm sure George Kay, who was a very successful manager of Liverpool at that time. George won't go on forever, but he didn't want to be standing on George Kay's toes. He loved George Kay. And while he was away at the war, he uh, got the offer to come for an interview at Manchester United. He had a pretty good idea what it was about, uh, what the job he was going to... He wasn't going to be offered a job in the tea bar. And uh, so he came back and, while still in uniform, signed to become for his first job in management was as manager of
2: Manchester United and uh, he you provide just also some context yeah. on what Manchester United was back yeah, then because it, it was one of the remarkable things It was things, the I second think, biggest team in Manchester But what people sometimes don't just really want just second biggest team in Manchester people don't realise about Manchester United is if you go through their history they've had two periods of extraordinary uh, success one under Busby and one under yeah. some other bloke more recently yes. And they were hugely popular, but for a long time in their history, they weren't particularly good. And outside of those two periods, they weren't, no. particularly good in fact no? yeah. they they hold they still hold the record until Benevento plays again and loses they still hold the record for a big five league for yeah. consecutive losses to start the season 1930-31 yeah. they lost 12 consecutive games at a time when Man City were doing very well so there was you know so for for so Busby comes into this yeah. club in a big city and whatever and it's a, maybe not a rival club to Liverpool back then not yeah. seen the same way but
3: what attracted What's him? What's his brief?
2: Yeah, what it, his brief, he was offered a three-year contract
3: and he was told quite correctly that Manchester United were already producing good young players from around the Manchester area. A bit like the class of 92, apart from Beckham. Most of them were from, you know, yeah, the, Manchester the, area. the Manchester area. And um, that was true because that team was good enough to win the FA Cup within three years of Matt taking over as manager. But he said, no, three-year contract's not going to be enough. I want to build not just a team, I want to build an entire structure. And that structure, of course, was based on youth. That structure culminated in his best team. He produced three great teams at Manchester United, but the best one was the middle one, the, 1948, 1958, 1968, and the 1958 team, the, the one that was destroyed at, uh, in the Munich crash. Um, that was the one he believed was his best. And that, that was the culmination of his dream. That, that team... Full of youngsters as well. Full of, full of youngsters. Home, uh, I think, at one stage, during the building of the Busby Babes, he went four and a half years without signing so much as a free transfer. Four and a half. You didn't bring in a single player. Didn't bring, he didn't have to. Because he, he had enough coming through the ranks at Old Trafford, to build not one team but two, playing the same way. All these things that now have, have become, oh, yeah, Pochettino is fantastic. Guess what he's thought of? I can't think of many things well, it, that are now considered great um, that Busby didn't do half a century earlier.
2: It's also right that it was a different era. Because Much easier. In those four and a half years easy, when he wasn't signing anybody, he wasn't winning the league and, and and, 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 and he whatever. He win the league in one of the seasons. But, 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 it, but I mean, you didn't he wasn't have...
3: having to win the league every year like Antonio Conte. He goes two months without winning the league and people ask why. Or
2: so, or indeed, even Sir Alex Ferguson Sir years Alex later. Alex
3: Ferguson, yes. Um, he didn't but, have the Glazers as shareholders. No. But the interesting thing and the great thing, you mentioned Alex Ferguson. The, the fascinating thing for me, although I knew it before I wrote it, so I can't pretend to have learned something from my own book, but the amazing thing and the thing that I desperately want people to read and understand is that Alex Ferguson's greatest achievement was to rebuild Manchester United but not just rebuild Manchester United he rebuilt Matt Busby's Manchester United with extraordinary faithfulness the first 5,000 words of this book are about the similarities between the methods and the personalities of and, and the characters, should I say, of Matt Busby and Alex Ferguson. Alex Ferguson rebuilt Manchester United in Matt Busby's image. And, and you might say, oh, yeah, he's saying it he just copied... It's the highest compliment I can pay to Alex Ferguson. Yeah.
2: I, it, this is a really good point because... So, just to talk about myself for a minute. Yeah. Um, I wasn't living in this country and, and for most of the 1980s. And mm-hmm. Liverpool were the English side that yeah. everybody feared. Yeah. And United... Back then, were a side that cycled through managers and spent tons of money. This was a team that tried to basically go and, big and, and spend its. Yeah. It, yeah, and and I remember even even mm. you know some of the early Ferguson teams. Obviously, he had to produce, and obviously you know, oh, and and very the, the, you know, but but you know, the Pallister and yes. Neil Webb and you know and 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 Paul Ince famously you know, they were just. They would just throw money around, yep. and it That's all right. felt so fragile, so, um, so kind of fly by night, so desperate. Like yes. and we're going to spend our way out of it. Yeah. But all the while, he was buying, and Fred, buying time. Yeah, he was buying time for himself. That's right. And he was and he was following the Busby blueprint. Absolutely. No, I'm curious. Spot it, on. They, I'm assuming Sir Alex met. Yes, Busby at yes. some point. In fact, he said. I mean,
3: a lot has been said about the comfort that Bobby Charlton Sir Bobby Charlton's presence at Old Trafford was a real football man, at the, the during the early struggling years of Sir Alex Ferguson. But he, um, it, uh, the, in the book, there's there's a lot of stuff from an old old interview that I did with Sir Alex Ferguson in 1993, and he talked. They were on the verge. They were not far off winning their first title under him, which really cemented it, meant he was was fine, he was fireproof. But for a few years, he hadn't been. And he, he told me, and it was a lovely graphic description, he said, I often used to go into... His main office was at the Cliff, the old training ground, but he said, I often used to go into Old Trafford, and I was hoping for something. And as soon as I opened the door of the reception building... If I could smell the pipe smoke, I knew Matt was in. His office was on the first floor, but so strong was his pipe smoke that it would it would fill the whole reception area. And he said, if I could smell the pipe smoke, I just used to say hello to the receptionist and toddle up there, just have a chat with Matt. And I I can't tell you how valuable it was. And it did. But he he not only but the great thing that, that Alex Ferguson did was that he he lent on Matt. Yes, definitely, for inspiration, but he embraced his legacy. He didn't sort of say that's all in the past." Matt Busby, forget it yesterday's man he 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 said, "We've got to get back to where Matt Busby was and in fact it, it was it was Matt Busby that imbued Manchester United with that glamour when when he was at, at aberdeen, Alex Ferguson, and he said um, He told his chairman, he said, there are only two clubs I'm going to leave Aberdeen for, you know, um, Dick. uh, Dick Donald was the chairman. He said, Manchester United or Barcelona. Now, the only reason he could mention Manchester United in the same breath as Barcelona
2: was because of what Matt Busby had made that club. The glamour. There's so much more that we could talk about. We haven't even mentioned the uh, three Ballon d'Or winners and, uh, yeah. the, and 1968 yeah. and all this stuff. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But uh, the book is out. I think it makes a, a tremendous uh, Christmas present Thank for you. the Manchester United uh, fan yeah. uh, in, in in your life. And I think we all oh, have matches. Oh,
0: neutrals as well. Surely, <laughs> yes. A neutral's Paddy's writing. I mean, what a brilliant
2: <laughs> writer he is. time now for some quick hits heartbreak for Northern Ireland as they're knocked out by Switzerland and in the end uh, that highly dubious penalty in the first leg made all the difference. Stuart this would not have happened if we had VAR in World Cup playoffs and probably wouldn't have happened if we had additional assistant referees either Um, but anyway more importantly if you were Michael O'Neill what would you do can you go any further Not
0: with Northern Ireland, you can't. I mean, he's done brilliantly over the last couple of campaigns. Uh, He's got more out of this side than anybody has of recent times. Uh, And I think his stock is very high at the moment. It's the right time for him to move on. So thank you very much. I'm sure a top championship side will come and have a look at him and take him. I'm not sure he'd get into the Premier League at the moment. I think he'd have to do well in the championship and then he might get a job in the Premier League. But if if you were a done... top
2: championship side who wanted to get promotion, mm-hmm. would you hire him with his style of football? Do you think that's appropriate? Do you think that that's something that can get you promoted?
0: Uh, lots of teams have done in the past. Uh, uh, yes, I think he can He can do it. Uh, whether then hire... when they got into the Premier League, he could change or adapt his style of play, that's another question.
2: I would have thought it might actually have been the other way around. That if you play that way, maybe you're better suited to staying up near the bottom of the Premier League than you are to... Well, Getting promoted I, I think the if, if, if he was in the championship, I, I think he'd.
0: I don't think he's just a coach that would be uh, defensive and and uh, try and play long ball football the time. You have to play a dynamic style in the championship. You have to make sure that you get the ball into the front areas quickly. You have to usually have a couple of front players that combine well. You you get promoted by scoring goals. So stuff that
2: his teams have struggled to do but I think he would do it in the championship interesting I'd love to see him in a different different context Croatia have qualified and uh, James on paper they look like one hell of a team from Ivan Perisic to Luka Modric from Ivan Rakitic to Mario Mandzukic should we be making a bigger deal out of them?
1: I mean I I think this Croatian generation might have unfinished business at, at major tournaments. I mean, they've they've not had a, they've not had a particularly good result this decade, but they've sort of had they've had individually sort of eye catching results like beating Spain at the last Euros, and then they lost to Portugal, who ultimately went on to win. I mean, obviously everyone knows they've got a lot. They've got you know, brilliant crop of midfielders. You got Modric, Rakitic. Kovacic, but I also think they've got quite. An, they've got quite an underrated group of strikers. You've got Kramaric, who's been pretty good at Hoffenheim for a season and a half. Kalinic has scored a lot of goals. Uh, Mandzukic. But they they've had a ton
2: of baggage.
0: They've got true. baggage. They've got. A, they, they had to sack their manager <laughs> yeah, to, to appoint true. somebody else who we're not sure is going to take them to the World Cup. Dalic.
2: The Republic of Ireland drew nil-nil away to Denmark on a horrid pitch, and what many neutrals um, and not so neutrals like Ray Houghton described as a horrid game. Stuart. This is very much in the balance. Thoughts?
0: Uh, Yes, I think think they described it exactly right. It wasn't a particularly good game. The Republic of Ireland went to defend and try and be as hard to beat as possible, which you always do when you're going away from home in a playoff game. I think they've got every opportunity to go and win. I've seen Denmark play on three or four occasions. I don't think they're a particularly good side. I don't think they've got that much creativity. So I think the Republic of Ireland will win the game very narrowly. Is that good for football? I'm not sure it's good for uh,
2: football, but it's good for the Republic of Ireland. Now, one of the main reasons Italy are in the playoffs is that they were second seeds and they ended up in a group with Spain. And that happened because between 2011 and 2015, when the draw was made, they did a horrendous job with friendlies, both in terms of results, winning just five of 21, and in terms of scheduling. James, you know a thing or two about this because you've written about an excellent piece, which I think not enough people have paid attention to a while back. Uh, certainly not the Italian FA. Can you tell us more?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the principle behind it is that obviously uh, your seeding for World Cup qualification and indeed for the tournament itself is based on your FIFA ranking. And there are certain ways in which you can sort of game the FIFA ranking system to get your ranking as high as possible. The FIFA ranking is based on an average, uh, your average points per match, and qualifiers or games that matter get a much bigger multiplier than friendlies. Friendlies are only worth 40% of what qualifiers are worth. And because it's an average, clearly the more friendlies you play, even if you win them, the more you are inevitably going to dilute your FIFA ranking. And especially if you lose them, of course, because then you get zeros and nothing hurts your average like zeros. There are times to play your friendlies, mostly after the draws and seedings have been made. So, for example, now, obviously the World Cup seeding is already done, so you can play as many experimental friendlies and lose as many of them as you like. Or within reason. Within reason, sure. Or more than 12 months before the draw and seedings are done, because... More
2: recent results count for more. Exactly. It's all stuff that Italy just totally ignored, and, in fact, they played a friendly, I think it was one, against Portugal, which nobody showed up for, and they duly lost 1-0, which is a big contributing factor to them slipping out of, uh, of of the top seed. They did it one month, literally, before the uh, before the uh, before July twenty seventeen, July twenty fifteen, which is when the draw was made. I mean, absolute stupidity.
1: And if you want the counter example, the counter example is Poland, who were, I think top seeds for qualifying, they're top seeds for the World Cup itself, and they I think only have played, I think it's one or two friendlies in the twelve months before the seedings were done.
2: Well, I'll I'll give you uh, another great count example, Romania, who, and I don't think it's a coincidence that our friend Edward happens to be Romanian because they're top seeds. And do you remember Romania making a splash or reaching the finals of European championships in 2012 like Italy did? No, but it's just that they're more intelligent and more power to them. Plenty of noises coming from Jose Mourinho's camp that he's ready for a new contract. Uh, his current deal, of course, expires in uh, June of 2019. And like clockwork, there are stories linking him to Paris Saint-Germain. Stewart, should Woodward bite on this and give him what he wants? Or should he maybe realize that Mourinho really doesn't have that much leverage?
0: Uh, I think he should hold off at the moment. I was very complimentary at the beginning of the season how Manchester United were playing, but in the last few weeks it's gone back to quite dull football. They, uh, I thought they were very poor against Chelsea. It's a case of uh, wait and see, I would say, for Woodward uh, to see how Mourinho puts this side together over the next few weeks uh, and then make a decision.
2: But it's too early to to, uh, to give him another contract at the moment. I was kind of going through the process of elimination I don't think Mourinho has leverage because I don't think there's anywhere that he can realistically go. Not because he's not a good manager, but because he's burned bridges or because they can't afford him or whatever. Other than Paris Saint-Germain. And there you've got this massive threat of financial fair play Mm. hanging over him. Um, So, yeah, if you're Woodward, you're kind of like, hey, there's nowhere you can go where you can have it as good as here. So uh, let's wait a while.
0: Yeah, That's exactly what I would do. Wait a while and see what happens over the next few weeks.
2: Now, we don't often delve into the lower divisions, but I think the Oystons merit mention. Uh, James, you've done a lot of reporting uh, on this and a lot of research on this. Um, can you sum up this lovely duo, what they're accused of doing, and maybe tell us if you can conceive what it must be like to be an Oyston?
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure about the second part. But uh, the, the Oystons are the Blackpool owners who have just lost a case at the High Court and been ordered to pay a huge amount of money to the minority shareholder who's called Valerie Bellicon. And essentially what they're accused of is is stripping the club during the period that Blackpool were in the Premier League, taking money out of the club coffers and paying it in to their own companies to the tune of about, I think, £11 million, I, I think was the figure, <laughs> described by uh, Mr Bellicon's barrister as using the club at their own personal cash machine.
2: I, I find it extraordinary I go back to the fit and proper person test Mm. that people are really, really taking, taking the absolute mick with this. And the next time you have some club owner crying that, oh, but look, I've put so much money into the club. Believe me, with very, very few exceptions of the Jack Walker variety back in the day, most people who own football clubs do not lose money on their investment. And if they tell you
1: they are, then they're liars. Gab, one for you. It could be a moot point by the time some people get around to listening to this podcast. But what do Italy need to do Monday night against Sweden to overturn that first leg deficit?
2: Realistically, they need to win by two clear goals, which is something that they could do on paper because they have a much higher ceiling uh, than uh, than Sweden do. But it's something that definitely will not happen if they play a uh, first half like they played in, uh, in Stockholm last week when uh, they were slow. Uh, they were scared. They looked like they had all sorts of psychological hangups. They were, they were intimidated. The whole thing is grotesque that they're in this, uh, that they're in this situation. And, um, yeah, you have a whole nation. I think I speak for me. I speak for myself. I speak for others. I just want this to be over. I just, I, I, for me, the days between Friday and Monday night are just absolutely horrendous. I can deal with, obviously I'd be happy if they made it. Um, and I could actually deal with the disappointment of not being there. But it's this period in between where, as as we talk, I, I tell myself that, "Hey, look! In about ten hours' time, um, everything will be decided," and that is what is completely horrendous to deal with—the uncertainty. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my excellent guests, Stuart Robson, James Geerbrandt, and Paddy Barkley. Remember, it's just £8 for an eight-week trial for a newspaper. All you need to do is search The Times online. And this season, in addition to our content, you also access highlights of every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup. We're going to be back next week after the Premier League returns with that little thing we call the North London Derby.
1: Till next time, bye-bye. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
0: VoiceOver on. Settings.
1: So you can navigate it just by listening.
0: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double-tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
1: And get on with your
3: day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
2: Small details or big surfaces? Tight corners or odd shapes? Flat, rounded, textured or tall? Whatever your next project...